thing that is our prayer. And uh, good news is we are in Matthew, which presents to us Christ very vividly. Uh, he is the direct subject. All Scripture uh, points to Christ, and Christ is the subject of all Scripture. But there is a heightened climactic sense when we come to the Gospels where the one that the Scripture has always spoken of is revealed to us and comes on the scene. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. So if you can find the New Testament, you're right there. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, looking at verses 13 through 17. And your Bibles probably mark at the heading there, the baptism of Jesus. And you can see I was not very creative in my title this, this Sunday. I, I just said that that works. We'll go with it. So we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3, follow along with me in your copy of God's Word or on the words on the screen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What I want us to consider this morning as we look at Jesus' baptism is that Jesus is a trailblazer. He's our trailblazer. As the writer of Hebrews writes or states, Jesus is the founder, he's the beginning, he is the source and perfecter of our faith. In other words, what I want us to consider this the morning is that Jesus has gone before us. He is paving the way for our redemption, and he's done so through his life, his death, and resurrection. Through the Gospel of Matthew, we're, we're going to continue to see these themes, but I'm just going to state them now. Jesus is our new Adam. He is a new Israel. And he has come to secure a new creation for us. What do we mean by those things? Well, as a new Adam, a new humanity is going to come forth from him. And he is the one who has obeyed where all of us as Adam's descendants have disobeyed. He is the light to the world that Israel refused to be. And he is the one who has laid down his life so that in him we may have eternal life. So this morning, our passage brings us to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And his ministry begins with his baptism. And while this is a short passage, it is filled with significance. Not only concerning who Jesus is and what he will do for us, but also for us as we claim to be his disciples. It's filled with consequence of what awaits us as we follow Christ See, in the Gospels, following Christ or believing in Christ or putting one's faith in Christ looks like something. It's, it's active. It's not passive. 
we typically think of having faith in something as merely intellectual assent. But in the Gospels, we are to follow, we are to come, we are to receive. And in Matthew, following is, is his particular way of articulating what saving faith looks like. And it looks like trusting Jesus enough to go down the path he has paved. It looks like trusting Jesus and saying, I will follow your footsteps. The path that you have trailblazed, I will walk down that path because I believe you. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus specifically calls individuals to follow him. I'm going to read these. He said to the disciples as they were fishing, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. To another individual who said, well, wait, I, I need to wait for my, my, my father to, to die. And in other words, I can reap my inheritance. Then I'll follow you. And Jesus responds to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. We read of Matthew's account of coming to Christ. As Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. Jesus says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. To the rich young ruler, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, now listen, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It's clear that saving faith in the Gospel of Matthew is active. And here in the account of Jesus' baptism, we see even here that this is the case, that Jesus is going before us and he is going to then call us to follow him. So as we examine the significance of Jesus' baptism, I want to call us to follow his footsteps because only in following him will we enter through what Jesus will say is the narrow gate, which leads to eternal life and into his kingdom. So to this end, I want to focus on three features of our passage in verses 13 through 17. I want us to look at the baptism of the Son, the anointing of the Spirit, and the confirmation of the Father. Those are going to be our headings this morning. The baptism of the Son, the anointing of the Spirit, and the confirmation of the Father. Let's consider the first, the baptism of the Son. As last Sunday we, we saw, John the Baptist has been out in the wilderness. He's along uh, the Jordan River, and he has been baptizing many. And that's still the scene that we have before us. John is along the river, but we see that as many are coming, and John is preaching a message of repentance and faith, we're getting prepared for the coming of the Lord. And if you remember... John said in, in verses 11 through 12, he anticipates this one to come after him. He tells the crowds, I'm baptizing you with water, 
But the one who has the substance is going to come. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And certainly they would have realized that he is the one who is going to usher in the kingdom. He's going to be the one who's going to deliver them from all their enemies. He's going to be the one to wash them of all of their sins. And John is building all this together. And climatically as he's proclaiming these things, John leads us to verse 13. Then Jesus came. Now imagine John was filled with anticipation. John's gospel, not John the Baptist, but John the disciple, John sees him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He, he recognizes in that moment who Jesus is. And so I'm, I'm sure here is, is, is this anticipation is building. John is preaching. And, and then Jesus starts to come into the waters John's thinking, man, I've never preached like this before, and I can't wait to see what's about to happen. And then something very unexpected happens. Jesus stands there, and, and John's like, well, Jesus says, aren't you going to baptize me? And John is utterly dumbfounded. He begins, Matthew tells us, to prevent Jesus from being baptized. He, he, he's like, no, no, you've got this the wrong way. Did you not just listen to my sermon? And, and you've missed the crescendo here. Um, you're here and then you baptize me. I've just told them you're, you're better than me. You've got the substance. All I got, Jesus, is some water here. You've got to rain down the fire. And, and so I got nothing. You would switch places. I don't know if it's exactly how that happened, but... But John is totally caught off guard. And the primary reason John is, is confused is because what well, we saw in verse 6 last Sunday, that he was baptizing a baptism of repentance which involved the confession of sins. Jesus, you're the one to deliver us from our sins. you got nothing to confess, you have nothing to repent of. So why on earth is Jesus to be baptized? If anything, John would need to be baptized by him. So what's going on? Why does Jesus need to be baptized? I think one of my, my daughters, I told them last night, get, going to bed, I said, we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus and why he had to be baptized. And I think it was Hannah who said, Jesus had to be baptized? And I imagine she was thinking very similarly to John the Baptist. You don't need to be baptized. Sinners need to be baptized. But we find the answer in Jesus' response. Jesus tells John the Baptist, let it be so now. In other words, it's all right, John. That's what he's saying. It's an idiom. He's just saying, it's all right for now. Just, just trust me. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, on the surface, this phrase is kind of ambiguous, isn't it? Well, what does that mean? It's not really clear to us. And some have suggested, well, well, Jesus is just saying, John, this is what's morally right. I need to do, you've been calling people to repentance and faith, and God commanded you to do this, and so I'm obeying God, and so therefore I'm going to do that. Well, Jesus certainly did what was morally right, and did what God commanded. This phrase, to fulfill all righteousness, is actually more specific than that, more technical of a term, if you will. 
than doing just what is morally good. And one key word that we need to hone in on is that word fulfill. You see that there? It's fitting for us to fulfill. Now, each time Matthew uses that term, he is speaking of events in the life of Jesus that have fulfilled Old Testament prophetic expectation. We saw that in, in the birth narratives. You, know, you could go to, to, to chapter 2, verse 5, or, or verse 15, or verse 17, where this occurred in order to fulfill. Except the difference here is that we don't have a scripture citation. Where in most of those cases, you did. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. Or a voice was heard in Ramah. A voice of the one crying in the wilderness. You'd have scripture. But here we don't have scripture. Well, what's going on? Well, basically what he's saying is this event should be recalling things. He's embodying, actually, the prophetic word. And another key word to help us know what he's embodying, what scripture he's referring to, is that word righteousness. Righteousness in Matthew involves behavior, we'll see, which aligns with the will of God to bring about his kingdom. Okay, Seek first his kingdom and righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. There, there, there are two terms, kingdom and righteousness, they go together. And so what Jesus is saying to John is, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness in the sense that, John, you and I have a prophetic role to fulfill in doing this. This is God's will for us and his will to bring his kingdom promises to fruition. And as we'll soon see, this account of Jesus' baptism recalls what Pastor Gary read from us from Isaiah 42, which spoke of God sending his servant. And this servant will be given as a covenant. And we find out in Isaiah 53 that this servant will lay down his life and die and suffer on behalf of his people. Isaiah 42, 5, this servant is said, to not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice. That's the same word, righteousness. Until he has established righteousness, you can hear it, establish the kingdom, if you will, in the earth. This one will not grow faint. He will not grow weary. He will finish the mission that is being given to him. And this is the starting line, the baptism. So understanding this prophetic role, he, he's embodying the promise of Isaiah 42. John, I don't know if he said this, remember your Bible? This is what we're about to do. And I think really John doesn't realize it, but probably on the flip side of the events that then transpire, as the Holy Spirit comes out, they hear the, the, the voice from heaven coming out, that that passage begins to come to their mind. But understanding this prophetic role, we can identify three practical reasons why Jesus was baptized. I want us to consider these. I'm going Gary Yoakum style. I got one point with three subpoints, okay? <laughs> you pick on me, brother, so. Jesus' baptism demonstrates his identification with sinners. This is what he's fulfilling as the suffering servant. 
As the suffering servant of God who would rescue his people, he has come to dwell amongst them and be their representative. That's what I meant by he's a new Adam. He's a new representative for humanity. He's coming to identify with them. He's leading out. He's the beginning. He's, he's the beginning of, the, uh, of paving the path to returning to God, though he himself had nothing to repent of. He himself was not enslaved to sin, but he has now come to the place where his people were enslaved. This is exactly what we saw when, when Jesus' birth narrative, that the angels direct Mary and Joseph to go back to Egypt, and that fulfilled the prophecy that out of Egypt I have called my son. Egypt was the place where Israel was in bondage. Well, now we're seeing this in a far greater way that Jesus, through his baptism, a baptism of repentance and confession of sin, he doesn't need to do that, but he is coming to the place where his people are in need. Do you see the beautiful picture here? He has left the glories of heaven to bridge the gap. And he's coming all the way to where we are. Jesus was to be our substitute, our sacrificial lamb, the one who is take our place on the cross. He would have to identify himself with us. Number two, Jesus' baptism symbolically anticipated his death and resurrection. This is what is going on. And we begin to fill out what baptism means. The picture of baptism is of a going down into the water. Uh, unfortunately, today we don't have one of these. We, we do regularly, but it's a picture of going down. Uh, in the ancient world, the water represented the abyss, the, the realm by, of the dead, if you will. It was the place below the earth. To be in, uh, immersed into death would be to go to the bottom of the ocean. You might think of Jonah as he goes to the bottom, to the depths and Jesus says and likens his death and resurrection to like Jonah who went to the depths and then came out. And so well, this picture of baptism is a picture of being immersed in death. But the coming out of the water represents the resurrection from the dead. As our pioneer, as our trailblazer paving the way to the kingdom, Jesus would go through a baptism of death. But not only that, he would pave the way through the heart of death and come out on the other side. That's the good news. Do you recall that story with James and John when uh, actually they send their mother, one of their mothers, to go and ask, can, can my son sit at your right hand or left hand? I want you to consider what Jesus says to them. Turning your Bibles to Mark 10. Matthew records this, but Mark gives a little bit more detail. But I want you to see this connection with baptism. Mark chapter 10, Matthew, Mark. And uh, we're just going to look at verses 38 through 39. And so Jesus responds to them, and he says, you do not know what you are asking. Now, they're asking for glory, right? We're, we're asking to be at your, your right-hand men in your kingdom. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Cup is often in the scriptures a, a, a euphemism for the cup of wrath, of judgment. Or, notice what he says, to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Are you able to drink the cup of judgment? Are you able to be immersed into what I'm going to be immersed in? And they said to him, we're able, Jesus. These are pretty sobering words. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. What is Jesus talking about? He says to them, before glory, you must walk through death. And you don't realize that yet. You don't realize the path that I'm paving. You don't quite realize it. And they would be in glory with him. But they don't realize the path that's going to go. They don't know the place that he's going. Peter will say that you'll never die under my watch. He says, get behind me, Satan. You've set your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. So Jesus is telling them that the path of glory walks through the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus' baptism here, all the way in Matthew chapter 3, foreshadowed the death that he would die before the glory of his resurrection. And he tells James and John, if you're going to be with me, you're going to have to go through death and resurrection as well. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our trailblazer and the path to glory as I've said, runs through the valley of the shadow of death. But the good news is, is that he has blazed the trail before us and he will see us through. And this naturally leads to the third reason Jesus was baptized. Jesus' baptism served as an example for us. Just as Jesus' baptism represented his identification with sinful humanity, with you and me, says, I have come for you, I've come to the place you are. You are immersed in death. I'm going to go to the place of death, and I'm going to come out and take you with me. So his followers are to be baptized, expressing their identification with him and their death and resurrection with him. Do you see that? This is why at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we're, we're, we're actually bookend with baptism. Jesus' baptism starts off as his ministry begins here in Matthew 3, and in Matthew 28, Jesus commissions and sends his disciples to do likewise. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. This is why he's able to do that. Start taking them down the path that I have blazed. Make them disciples of me. Show them the path. And so we're putting the, the dots or connecting the dots here. Just as Jesus' baptism marked the beginning of his mission to accomplish salvation, so our baptism marks the starting point for following Jesus as he leads you to salvation. And so for this reason, some of you need to take the first step of obedience and following Christ. Some of you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you haven't done the first thing he's commanded. And belief entails following. So how can you say, I'm of Christ, but I don't really follow? You can't. He's come to identify with you. Why don't you identify with Him? 
That's what your baptism entails. It's an identification. You heard it in Karsten's testimony. He says before college, he, he was baptized when he confessed Jesus as Lord. Baptism is the public demonstration that I'm with Team Jesus. And you've heard me maybe use that analogy before. You're on the wrong team, and baptism is putting on the team jersey. And you can't say that I'm here to play the game if you don't have the jersey on. That's what baptism is. Baptism is the outward sign and public declaration that you have spiritually died to your sin and been raised to newness of life in Christ. Jesus' baptism foreshadowed his death and resurrection for sinners. Our baptism kind of does a twofold. It looks back to our identification with his death and resurrection, but it also anticipates our death and resurrection. That's the, the meaning. I told you this is a short passage with a, a, a bunch of weight here. It's introducing for the church that your Lord, as Matthew would have been read in the early churches, he was baptized and you must do likewise. And this is the significance of the baptism of the Son, but let's now look at the anointing of the Spirit. If you're lost your place, we're back in verse 16 of, of chapter 3. And we see that when Jesus was baptized, verse 16, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now again, many have made grave errors in what this verse means. Some of the heretical uh, groups have taught uh, what's called adoptionism, this view that somehow that at Jesus' baptism that he was adopted as God's son, uh, that he became God at this moment. And, and you know what they conveniently say? And you can do too. You can do likewise. Well, that's not what's going on. This is a significant misreading of the text. Jesus has always been divine. They conveniently forget chapter 1 of Matthew. And not only do we find out that Jesus is divine, Emmanuel, God with us, but we find out that he's already got the Spirit. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was, he was from, actually, the text more woodenly translated would read. He's from the Holy Spirit. There's a union. There's, there's, a, there's a, a connection here. And so Jesus has not been without the Spirit this whole time, and then miraculously he, 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 he receives the Holy Spirit. Rather, this is what's going on. This is a public event marking the beginning of his mission to carry out the will of God. And he will do this mission empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is a, a new sense in which he's enacting. He, he's going to take on a ministry role, a prophetic role, a kingly role. He's now being coronated, if you will, as the king. He's being shown for who he really is. There is a sense in which he is, he is ascending to this spot as the Davidic king. He's taking on the role. You, you think of, of David when, uh, when Samuel goes to look for a son of Jesse and, and, and Jesse brings out all his sons and, and, uh, and 
Samuel goes and he thinks one of these is the one. And then God tells Samuel, no, there's another. Samuel says to Jesse, well, do you, ha do you have any more sons? And he goes, yeah, David, he's out there with the sheep. He says, bring him to me. The Lord said, this is my king. This is my king. He's a man after my own heart. Now, he's declared the king, but he's not appointed. He hasn't ascended the throne until God's finished with Saul. And so we kind of see a two-stage here. Well, Jesus here is being shown to be the rightful king. And he will ascend to the throne at his death and resurrection and ascension. But this is marking out his mission. And this is exactly what Isaiah 42, 1 said that Pastor Gary read for us. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, meaning I have empowered him. That's what's going on here. And he will bring forth justice, that is righteousness, to the nations. In the Old Testament, the Spirit is promised to anoint and empower God's future king, specifically the Davidic king. And that this king who would ascend the throne, a son of David, he would accomplish all God's kingdom purposes and he would sit on that throne forever. In other words, God would anoint his king with his spirit so that he could accomplish his tasks but there will come a day in which my spirit will never depart from this son. That everything he does, he will succeed. Saul, who was not a believer, had the spirit of God upon him in the Old Testament. David prays after his sin with Bathsheba, please, Lord, let not your spirit leave me. The, the spirit can come and go in the Old Testament and actually doesn't correspond to whether you're actually a believer or not. But Jesus comes, the author and perfecter of our faith, as the king, and the Spirit's going to rest upon him and never leave. Why is that important? Because John tells us that he can, he's going to then give us the Spirit. Because he's the stable one, and we're in him, we receive all that is his. I got a little bit ahead of myself, but let's, let's keep going. What does this mean that Jesus is anointed by the Spirit? Well, by the Spirit, Jesus actually walks in obedience to the Father. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. This is where we'll be next Sunday. But Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus walks in obedience as he's dependent upon the Spirit. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly how we walk in obedience. Jesus fulfills his prophetic role. Look in verse 17. So he's, he's been led out by the Spirit. And what does Jesus do in verse 17? From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, he's a prophet like John the Baptist. And he's doing it now, carried out by the power of the Spirit. Coming back to our text, before the Spirit descends upon him, Behold, the heavens were opened to him. We see that exact phenomenon occur in Ezekiel 1.1, where Ezekiel is commissioned for his prophetic ministry. And Ezekiel beholds and the heavens are opened to him where he then receives the vision of the Lord. Well, well Jesus 
is a greater prophet than Ezekiel. It's by the Spirit that Jesus will accomplish all his healings, all his exorcisms, as he will deliver people. The Spirit's anointing him and empowering him for the task. Not only that, the, the anointing of the Spirit upon Jesus marks the promise of the age of salvation. Now's the day of salvation that's been promised. Notice that Matthew describes the Spirit as like a dove coming upon him. You see that? Behold, the heavens were opened to him, verse 16, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. This picture of the Spirit, like a bird or a dove, is you get the idea of, of, of the Spirit hovering and, and brooding, flapping his wings over the water where Jesus was. You know where we see the Spirit hovering over the waters? In Genesis 1-2, when God's about to create the world. You know the other time we, we see a dove hovering over waters? It's in Genesis chapter 8. As God has uncreated the world and is about to start a new creation through Noah. The dove goes out and returns because there's, he's hovering over the waters, has nowhere to land. What's the significance of this connection with Genesis? The connection is, is that Jesus has come to bring a new creation. He's come to bring a new beginning. He is the one who has come who is going to recreate the world. And he's doing it starting by individuals. He's going to recreate your heart. That all who come to him, he will give you a new heart. Everything's new with Jesus. And this is what the Spirit's anointing, empowering him to do. Just as the gift of the Spirit is connected with Jesus' baptism, guess what? So the Spirit, gift of the Spirit, is connected with our baptism. Baptism represents not only our death and resurrection, but the Spirit's work in washing us from our sins. And, and if you've been here for any amount of time, you've seen someone come out of the waters of baptism and you, and you see the water flowing off of them. Well, that's symbolic as well, picturing what the Spirit has done in their life. That this person has been washed clean. This is why, again, when Jesus commands his disciples to, make, to baptize, they're not just to baptize, but they're to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is why Peter preaches in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He connects the two. So do you see how Jesus goes before us? Are you, are you seeing this? And those who follow him actually receive all that is his. That's the point I want you to see. He's endowed with the Spirit. He's the one who can dispense the Spirit. And the Spirit forgives us of all of our sins. And the work of the Spirit will, will keep him from being discouraged or faint till he establishes righteousness in all the earth. Well, this is also true for point three, the confirmation of the Father. Verse 17, not only does the Spirit descend, but there's a voice. And we read, behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
In these words, the God of heaven gives his seal of approval. Again, it's a coronation. This is my beloved son, my, my king, my representative. I'm pleased with him. And what's the implication? You want to be with him. You want to follow him. This happens one other place, actually. In, in Matthew chapter 17, you don't need to turn there. But this phenomenon happens again, and it's known as the transfiguration, where Jesus brings Peter and John up on the mountain, and Jesus shows them all his glory. He gives a, a foretaste of what he will, how he will appear and how he will look when he comes at his second coming. And they see him all his splendor and all his glory. But not only that, when Jesus reveals himself, a voice from heaven declares, actually he says, the God of heaven. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then we hear this, listen to him. Listen to him. It's just another way of saying follow him. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. That's what Jesus says. I'm the good shepherd. Come follow me. Come follow me. Now, it's interesting to think about this. God has actually had many sons, if you think about it in the Old Testament. And what I mean by sons, I mean his representatives. Scripture says that Adam was a son of God. Israel, the whole nation, is, is said to be a son of God. David, as the representative of the nation, was a son of God, but only Jesus was the obedient son of God with whom the Father is well pleased. All these other representatives have failed, but this one comes and he's beloved. He is the greater David whose heart never wanders away from the Lord. And for this reason, when Jesus dies on the cross in the place of sinners, his sacrifice is acceptable to God, and he is vindicated by being raised from the dead. Brothers and sisters, for all who identify with Jesus by faith and following him, for those who listen to him, guess what? We too become beloved sons and daughters of the king. You too will hear, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased if you follow Jesus. Because all that is his, he gives to those who follow him. All that, it, all that he has done, he gives to those who identify with him. Have you identified with Christ? Have you followed Christ? Have you trust Christ? So I was preparing this sermon. I was thinking of the, the old hymn by Fanny Crosby. This line came to my mind. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he hath done. Jesus has come to us so that he can lead us to the Father. He has come to us to take away our sins. He has come to us to give us the spirit of life. He has come to us to make us beloved children of God. So if this is why he has come, have you followed him? Are you following him? Will you follow him?
my prayer that no one here would name the name of Christ but fail to actually follow, to listen, to obey, to walk with him. Because it's only by walking down the path he has blazed that we'll enter through the gates of his glorious kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for not leaving us to ourselves. Thank you that you have identified with sinners, sinners like me. Thank you that you have paved the way right through the heart of death. That though we die in Christ, we live forevermore. And that is where our hope is, is just as you died and rose again, that so we too will rise again at your second coming. And Lord, for anyone here who has merely professed them, professed you with their lips, but has not believed upon you in their heart, Lord, I pray. I pray today would be the day of salvation. That they would commit to say, I will follow you. And Lord, that you would give them your spirit and wash them of all of their sins and that they would be beloved in your sight. Lord, that's our prayer and that's our plea this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.